Blog Talk Radio. on Jacksonville, North Kakalaka, to Jacksonville, Florida. So glad for be your pun. We show Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. This year the head pun the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. This year the queen quit. So glad that Hunter Chillin' tune in one more again to we Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station where we the gee upliftment to the living legacy and a pay ancestral homage. So this evening, we to dedicate this year on one story to Susan King Keeler and Harriet Tubman, Charlotte Ford. Well, but dear Rachel and beautiful Coney, Suskakalaki, back of Yona, with big shoot to start. Let me take a moment of silence for these young men. Ashe, 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 amen. So glad for dear one more game with Hunter Chillin' Zing like that. And thank you, thank you to all of Hunter Chillin' with a shared program all around through the Facebook, all around through Twitter, all around to Hunter Blog and thing like that. And rather was to all of Hunter Chillin' around the world with a download this year podcast. I think every week when it's coming on. And we're so glad that Hunter to tune in to this year late broadcast this year Monday evening. But you know, we still got things for fight for you. So we've been there, you know, people South Kakalaki that have a fight for we library and thing. So we had to go out to a meeting to see. And only for final, they're changing the meeting, and they're taking the day to tell next Monday. So, 
we have to take, take and we stand. We have to keep taking the stand for this year, go to Gitche Nation, Seattle land. So sometimes we have to change up when the broadcast is going on because we're the out in the field still the whole upon the culture and thing like that. So for all our children with there on the well, we'll make this broadcast way down and then make up so much a thousand, a thousand, a thousand of listeners and things like that around the world. Take it, take it, yeah. Please keep on tuning in and sharing this year with the family and things like that. And for all our children with yet we quite with either one yet this year, but they can't stand tall tall. We want to ensure that you can understand the broadcast. So of course I will go through the rest of our women's her story celebration speaking this language here. And this is Queen Quet. I'm the chiefess and head of state for the Gullah Geechee Nation and the founder of the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition that sponsors this broadcast every week. The Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition can be found at www.gullahgeechee.net. That is G-U-L-L-A-H. And you can find me at queenquet.com, www.queenquet.com. And please make sure to follow our blog at GullahGeecheeNation.com. And I appreciate all of you who have started following the blog and have also been posting the additional educational material links that we provide for these broadcasts. And we have a lot more that's going to be added to some of the links that are even up there at the end of this month. And this month is Gullah Geechee Volunteer Month. And so since I'm directly out in the field with the students, hands-on, doing the work, and then in between all of that, we have been hit with a plethora of different meetings to fight seismic gun blasting here, the, to slide off the potential of oil drilling here, and that comment period is going to end March the 30th. March the 30th is going to be the last date for that comment period, so keep following at Gullah Geechee on Twitter and Gullah Geechee Nation on Facebook to read more. But if you also follow Gullah Geechee Nation's blog, then you'll see the different postings that we have about this, that this BOEM, the Bureau of Oceans and Energy Management, had a hearing last week. I attended that and got a great deal of literature to help us understand exactly what it is that they are seeking in terms of public comment, and that public comment period will end on March the 30th. So our next week broadcast, we're going to dedicate to that and to the environment that we are fighting to hold on to constantly, and that is some of the leading work that the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition does. And to become a member, you can always email us to G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com. That's GoGeeko at AmericaOnline.com, and we can send you a membership application. We want to thank everyone who supported the Coastal Cultures Conference last Saturday. It was a huge success. We had an outstanding turnout with people who were truly dedicated to learning about Gullah Geechee culture and how to sustain it. And also we had a wonderful turnout at the Sam Doyle Folk Art Festival that took place at Penn Center. So very happy with everyone who came out, supported our artists, and supported this journey, truly, that we are on to protect who we be down young. And especially right here in Beaufort County, South Kakalaki, what we want to crack we teeth about this evening. Since this is Gullah Geechee Volunteer Month, every week this month so far, I have had tour groups that I've been taking around to educate them on the history of the Gullah Geechee Nation. And... 
there's an aspect to his story that's her story here in the Gullah Geechee Nation that pertains to when Big Shoot was start back as the Southerners refer to it, the War of Northern Aggression, and as you may know it, as the U.S. Civil War. Well, many people are unaware of the women that played a crucial role during the U.S. Civil War. I'm not unaware because over the years I've done a great deal of historic research on my own hometown, on my own county, to be able to under and overstand some of the dynamics of the county and to also be able to share that story on a deeper level with people around the world so that they would under and overstand what it is that we're fighting to hold on to and would understand the legacy of our story here in this region and in particular in a place from which much of my family's roots stem in North America. Well, it has been a very, very interesting journey when there's certain information that you learn about and that you are able to uncover and discover in some cases in archives and it may be one or two lines about something and when you go to share it with someone else because they never knew about it they don't believe that this took place they don't believe that this could have happened because they didn't know about it well there's a lot of things that may have happened that you might not be unaware that you may not be aware of but does not make it untrue and does not make it of any lesser value. And so, as we would say in the church, I taught it not robbery to share a few things with you so that you would know some of what took place here, especially since this is Women's Her Story Month, and we want to continue to celebrate the legacy of women. But we don't often think of women from the time of the 1800s, especially in 1861, 1862, 1863, and 1864, 5. We don't think of women in the war. We think of women being at home and away from, you know, all of the battle and all of that, and that their husbands and their sons went out into the battlefield, but not recognize the fact that many of the women themselves were on those front lines. And so there are a couple of women we want to focus on, one who was born in the Gullah Geechee Nation and another that migrated to the Gullah Geechee Nation. And so we want to focus on Susie King Taylor tonight and Harriet Tubman, who many of you are probably well aware of in regard to the Underground Railroad, and I would encourage you to go to www.nps.gov slash Harriet Tubman and pull down the Harriet Tubman Special Resource Study because I was greatly involved in that study. Very proud to say I was one of the people who consulted for that study and contributed to us coming up with what is now a national designation to honor Harriet Tubman through some parks that will be happening in Maryland where she was born and Auburn, New York where she passed and also that we have the Harriet Tubman Bridge here in Beaufort County, between Beaufort County and Collison County, where along the Cumbie River. This is the only bridge in the world totally dedicated to Harriet Tubman. I have a close bond with the spirit of Harriet Tubman because the books that I first checked out of the library at five years old bore the image of Harriet Tubman. I read every book that there was about her. 
I had no idea that later in life I would be drawn to go and study the Underground Railroad and to travel around to different states and even into Canada along the same tracks that many of our ancestors from down in the nation, the Gullah Geechee Nation's area, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, and in the mainland parts of the four states that we are a part of that ran to freedom in different directions, I found, not just northward like Harriet Tubman, but also westward and some down south and then back into the Caribbean or Caribbean islands, depending on who was speaking about it, not knowing I'd eventually get to go to her home in Auburn, New York, and actually see it, not knowing I would actually end up being led to stop at the Seward home before I got to her home to only find that Seward was the one whose property she purchased to put her home that became the nursing home that she left there. And so it's very, very interesting to still be on this journey and to see all these things come into fruition and to be part of it. But I think the greatest honor I've ever had was the first Harriet Tubman Woman of Distinction Award that I received. Then later when Harriet Tubman was to be posthumously installed, I was honored again. Both of those awards were presented to me in New York City, in Brooklyn, New York, in fact, and by people because of my community leadership and involvement in New York and my community leadership and involvement they knew of in the Sea Islands to help keep Gullah Geechee land going. So those honors are still on my wall, and it is a blessing whenever I walk by the Harriet Tubman Woman of Distinction Award and see her looking back at me. And then when I see my other Harriet Tubman Award, my Spirit Award, Harriet Tubman Spirit Award, that a sister who has traveled with me to a number of places over the time had presented because she was leading that installment, it is a powerful thing to have read of someone who was long since deceased before you got here, and then be honored because they feel that you are the embodiment of her spirit. And then turn around after that and be able to honor her by being a part of the study. It's critical. But here it is that as Harriet Tubman, the visionary, the warrioress, the soldier, the nurse, the healer, the spy, some call her, they say that because she was a scout, she made her way back south while a bounty was on her head. She made her way into the Union lines here in Beaufort County, ended up at Camp Saxon Camp Shore, which is in Port Royal Island where the Naval Hospital base is today. She was able to work along with those troops. She ended up living in downtown Beaufort, had a laundry co-op, and then also a bakery. So herein comes the connection with her and Susie King Taylor through the laundry co-op, because Susie King-Taylor came from the opposite direction, from Georgia up to Beaufort County with her husband. Now, Susie King-Taylor, unlike Harriet Tubman, was literate, so she wrote down what became known as Reminiscence of My Life, a black woman's Civil War memoirs. And there was no material that Harriet Tubman wrote herself, but there have been numerous accounts of her life and various parts of her life that have been documented by various people over time. Well, I want to give you some of Susie King Taylor's background from her own reminiscence here so that you will understand who she is and come into this linkage through being a laundress 
here in Beaufort County and that connection to Harriet Tubman operating that laundry co-op as well. And some of the other women they encountered while being here, women and men for that matter. Now we're going to start with the introduction in the book. It says, actual military life is rarely described by a woman. And this is especially true of a woman whose place was in the ranks as the wife of a soldier and herself a regimental laundress. No, such a description has ever been given, I'm sure, by one thus connected with a colored regiment, so that the nearly 200,000 black soldiers, 178,975, of our Civil War have never before been delineated from the woman's point of view. All this gives peculiar interest to this little volume, relating wholly to the career of the very earliest of these regiments the one described by myself from a wholly different point of view in my volume, Army Life in a Black Regiment, long since translated into French, and so on. And the person who actually was writing this introduction is Thomas Wentworth Higson, who he himself put together the book, as he said, Army Life in a Black Regiment, which I'm also going to be sharing from tonight. Well, after this introduction about how peculiar this is. He goes on to say, the writer of the present book was very exceptional among the colored laundresses in that she could read and write and had taught children to do the same. And her whole life and career were most estimable, both during the war and in the later period during which she has lived in Boston and has made many friends. I may add that I did not see the book until the sheets were in print and have left at wholly untouched except to a few errors and proper names. I commend the narrative to those who love the plain record of simple lives led in stormy periods. So Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was a former colonel of the 1st South Carolina Volunteer Regiment, the 1st South Carolina African Regiment, our 1st Negro troops mustered into service, and who later became the 33rd U.S. Colored Infantry, wrote that from Cambridge, Massachusetts, on November the 3rd, 1902. Now, here is what Miss Susie King Taylor, Mrs. Susie King Taylor, actually wrote in the beginning of her book. A brief sketch of my ancestors she starts off with about her great-great-grandmother who was 120 years old when she died and how she had seven children and five of the boys were in the Revolutionary War. She goes on later and talks about her great-grandmother and the daughters and so on, and then her mother, who was born in 1834, who married Raymond Baker in 1847, and they had nine children, three of which died in infancy. Then she writes, I was the firstborn. I was born on Crest Farm, which was on an island known as the Isle of Wight, Liberty County, about 35 miles from Savannah, Georgia, on August the 6th, 1848, my mother being waitress for the Gress family. I've often been told by my mother of the care Ms. Gress took of me. She was very fond of me. And I remember when my brother and I were small, children, and Miss Gress would go away on business. Miss Gress would place us at the foot of her bed to sleep and keep her company. Sometimes he would return home earlier. She'd return home earlier than he'd expected. And then she'd put us on the floor. And so she went on some more about her life as a child. 
And then she goes into Chapter 2 called My Childhood. It says, I was born under the slave law in Georgia in 1848 and was brought up by my grandmother in Savannah. There were three of us with her, my youngest sister and brother, my brother and I being the two eldest. We were sent to a friend of my grandmother, Mrs. Woodhouse, a widow, to learn to read and write. She was a free woman and lived on Bay Lane between Havisham and Prince Streets, about a half a mile from my house. We went every day about 9 o'clock with our books wrapped in paper to prevent the police or white persons from seeing them. We went in one at a time through the gate into the yard to the eye kitchen, which was the schoolroom. She had 25 or 30 children whom she taught, assisted by her daughter, Mary Jane. The neighbors would see us going on in sometimes, but they were supposed they supposed we were there learning trades, as it was a custom to give children a trade of some kind. After school, we left the same way we entered, one by one. When we would go to a square about a block from the school and wait for each other, we would gather laurel leaves and pop them on our hands. And on our way home, I remained at school for two years or more when I was sent to Mrs. Mary Beasley, where I continued until May of 1860. When she told my grandmother, she had taught me all she knew, and grandmother had better get someone else who could teach me more. So I stopped my studies for a while. I had a white playmate about this time named Kate O'Connor, who lived in the next corner street of my house and who attended a convent. One day she told me if I would promise not to tell her father, she would give me some lessons. On my promise not to do so and getting her mother's consent, she gave me lessons about four months every evening. At the end of this time, she was put into the convent permanently, and I've never seen her since. A month after this, James Blewis, our landlord's son, was attending the high school and was very fond of my grandmother. So she asked him to give me a few lessons, which he did until the middle of 1861 when the Savannah Volunteer guards to which he and his brother belonged were ordered to the front under General Barton in the first Battle of Manassas. His brother Eugene was killed and James deserted over to the Union side and at the close of the war went to Washington, D.C., where he has since resided. I often wrote passes for my grandmother for all colored persons, free or slaves, was compelled to have a pass free colored people having a guardian in place of a master. These passes were good until 10 or 10.30 p.m. for every night or every night for one month. And then she goes on and she writes some of what the pass looked like. And then she says, every person had to have this pass. But at 9 o'clock each night, a bell was rung, and any colored person found on the street after this hour was arrested by the watchman and put in the guardhouse until the next morning when their owners could pay their fines and release them. I knew a number of persons who went out at any time at night and were never arrested. As the watchman knew them so well, he never stopped them, seldom asked them to see their passes, only stopping them long enough sometimes to say howdy and then telling them to go along. About this time, I had been reading so much about the Yankees, I was very anxious to see them. The whites would tell their colored people not to go to the Yankees, but they would harness them to carts and make them pull the carts around in place of horses. I asked Grandmother one day if this was true. She replied, certainly not, that the white people did not want slaves to go over to the Yankees and told them these things to frighten them. 
Don't you see them signs pasted across the street? One reading, I'm a rattlesnake. If you touch me, I'll strike. Another reads, I'm a wild cat. Beware, etc. These are warnings to the north, so don't mind what the white people say. I wanted to see these wonderful Yankees so much, and I heard my parents say the Yankees was going to set all the slaves free. Oh, how these people prayed for freedom. I remember one night my grandmother went out into the suburbs of the city to a church meeting, and they were fervently singing this old hymn, Yes, we shall be free. Yes, we shall be free. Yes, we shall be free when the Lord shall appear. When the police came in and arrested all who were there, saying they were planning freedom and sanctioning the Lord in the place of Yankee to blind anyone who might be listening. Grandmother never forgot that night. Although she did not stay in the guardhouse, as she sent to her guardian, who came at once for her. But this was the last meeting she ever attended, out of the city proper. On April 1st, 1862, about the time the Union soldiers were firing on Fort Pulaski, I was sent out into the country to my mother. I remember what a roar and din the guns made. They jarred the earth for miles. The fort was at last taken by them. Two days after the taking of Fort Pulaski, my uncle took his family of seven and myself to St. Catherine's Island. We landed under protection of the Union fleet and remained there two weeks when about 30 of us who had taken aboard the, steam, the gunboat to be transferred to St. Simon's Island. And at last, to my unbound joy, I saw the Yankee. After we were settled aboard and started on our journey, Captain Whitmore commanded the boat. Asked me where I was from. I told him Savannah, Georgia. He asked if I could read, and I said, yes. Can you write? Next he asked, yes, I can do that also. I replied, as if he had some doubts of my answers, he handed me a book and a pencil and told me to write my name and where I was from. I did this. When he wanted to know if I could sew, on hearing I could, he asked me to have some napkins for him. He was surprised at my accomplishments, but they were such in those days. But he said he did not know there were any Negroes in the South able to read or write. He said, you seem to be so different from the other colored people who came from the same place that you did. No, I replied. The only difference is that we were reared in the country and I was in the city, as was a man from Darien, Georgia, named Edward King. That seemed to satisfy him, and we had no further conversation that day on the subject. In the afternoon, the captain spied a boat in the distance, and as it drew near, he noticed it had a white flag hoisted. But before it had reached the Pomoka, passengers between decks, so we could not be seen, for he thought they might be spies. The boat finally drew alongside our boat and had Mr. Edward Dongal on board. He wanted his two servants, Nick and Judith. He wanted these as they were his own children. Our captain told me he knew nothing of them, which was true, but at the time they were on St. Simon's and not as their father supposed on this boat. After the boat left, we were allowed to come up on the deck again. And she ends it there. But she goes on further in the book to talk about her life on St. Simon's Island. She eventually begins to talk about her journey and her life actually here in Beaufort County. But I wanted you to hear her background and how she ended up even getting spotted for the kind of work that she ended up dealing with. And if you were to read a reminiscence of my life, a black woman Civil War memoirs, you'll be taken on a journey through her words throughout the Gullah Geechee Nation. She talks about Darien, Georgia. She talks about 
Fernandina, Florida. She talks about a number of places that you've heard me discuss here on this broadcast and will hear me discuss further as the time goes on, as well as places you see me visiting on Gullah Geechee TV. And if you've never seen Gullah Geechee TV, make sure to go to www.gullahgeechee.tv or go to YouTube and type in Gullah Geechee TV, and you can actually see me in a number of these places that Susie King-Taylor talks about in her memoirs. And so it's very interesting. She goes to Morris Island and various other islands throughout the time that she is a part of what is going on, and she even speaks about the capture of Charleston. But in between all of this, the blessing is that it's, it's very simplistic, the same way I read it to you. It's just naturally as if she's let you into her diary, but her diary is so full. It is so rich because she took the time to learn to read and write, to practice reading and writing, and to share all of what was happening at the time. And so when we talk about the first South Carolina volunteers that I mentioned earlier, the first South Carolina African regiment, it's very interesting to find that she has within this the information about them even being mustered out of service. She has those details. And so when you go through the pages, it causes you to step back in time into our story, but especially stepping back into learning who she was, what her background was, who her people were. I have not read other Civil War documents and memoirs where the men talk about who they are and what their family backgrounds are. They may say that they wish their family was around or something like that, but not to go into this kind of background about these various things. And as I say, simplistic but detailed. And I only say simplistic in that it's in plain words. So even a child could read, comprehend, absorb the life that Susie King Taylor led and this is outstanding material, and we're so proud that we have it in our Gullah Geechee Al-K Bulan archive. And so it's interesting because she has an entire section called Military Expeditions and Life in the Camp. Now, she begins where she's actually talking about on March 10, 1863, they were ordered to Jacksonville, Florida, leaving Camp Saxon between 4 and 5 o'clock and arriving in Jacksonville at 8 o'clock. She goes on to talk about what took place down there. But later on in the memoirs, she gets into when they came back up and how they were planning an expedition for the Edisto River and what went on even in that discussion. And so she mentions within this even some of the things she saw at Camp Shaw. While at Camp Shaw, there was a deserter who came into Buford. He was allowed his freedom about the city and was not molested. He remained about the place a little while and returned to the rebels again. On his return to Buford a second time, he was held as a spy, tried, and sentenced to death. But he was a traitor. The day he was shot, 
he was placed on a hearse with his coffin inside. A guard was placed on either side of the hearse, and he was driven through the town. All the soldiers and the people in the town were out, and as this was to be a warning to the soldiers. Our regiment was in line on dress parade. They drove with him to the rear of our camp where he was shot. I shall never forget this scene. So she tells you of some horrific things that she saw like this as well. But she talks about the word spy. And you heard me mention earlier that Harriet Tubman was deemed a spy by some people, but actually she was a scout. She was a nurse, a soldier, and a scout. And so here it is that one of the women that was here at the time Harriet Tubman came in actually had come in as a missionary, and that is Charlotte Fortin. And I've been spending a great deal of time this month at Penn Center, which was Penn School, the first trade, agricultural, and normal school in America for freedmen and in the Gullah Geechee Nation, which is on historic St. Helena Island in South Carolina. Well, Penn School's first black teacher was Charlotte Fortin, who was a northerner. She has, her journal got published, the journal of Charlotte Fortin, a young black woman's reactions to the white world of the Civil War era is how they have the cover today. But it was simply her personal journal. Once again, these women wrote, they shared their story, they shared from their heart because they were writing things as they were happening and they were very detailed, not texting. They're not shortening everything into just a small amount of characters. They, in fact, are detailing the characters in their lives, okay? And they had character. These are women of integrity to be involved in educating others, to be involved in enhancing and increasing their education throughout their own lives, to be here in the forefront of a movement and not somewhere off just being dainty and afraid in some household somewhere away from these battle lines. But instead, we have this woman, Charlotte Fortin, staying here on St. Helena Island. And here she writes, and I would love to be able to tell you exactly what year she's talking about. I'm going to double back here in the book because since she was writing to herself, she does somewhat of what I do. I date each page that I'm starting with and go from there. So this had to be 1863. So here it is, January, Saturday, January the 31st, 1863. Lizzie and I went to Buford after bread. We had a lovely row across at noon in the brightest sunlight, but neither going or coming did the boatmen sing, which disappointed me much. The sergeant said they, these were not singers. That is most surprising. I thought everybody sang down here. Certainly every boat crew ought. As we drove to the ferry, we noticed how fresh and green everything looked, so unlike winter. The trees are nearly all evergreen. Bare branches are rarely to be seen. What a lovely morning it was, like a May morn up north, birds singing on every side, deep green in the pines and deep delicious blue in the sky. Why is it that green and blue together are so lovely in nature and so unlovely elsewhere? In Buford, we spent nearly all our time at Harry Tubman's, otherwise Moses. She's a wonderful woman, a real heroine has helped off a large number of slaves after taking her own freedom. She told us that she used to hide them in the woods during the day 
and go around to get provisions for them. Once she had with her a man named Joe, for whom a reward of $1,500 was offered. Frequently in different places, she found handbills exactly describing him. But at last, they reached in safety the suspension bridge over the falls and found themselves in Canada. Until then, she said, Joe had been very silent. In vain had she called his attention to the glory of the falls. He sat perfectly still, moody, it seemed, and while not even a glance at him. But then when she said, now we're in Canada, he sprang to his feet with a great shout and sang and clapped his hands in a perfect delirium of joy. So when they got out and he first touched free soil, he shouted and hurried as if he was crazy, she said. How exciting it was to hear her tell the story and to hear her sing the very scraps of jubilant hymns that she sang. She said the ladies crowded around them, and some laughed and some cried. My own eyes were full as I listened to her, this heroic woman. A reward of $10,000 was offered for her by the Southerners, and her friends deemed it the best that she should for a time find refuge in Canada. And she did so, but only for a short time. She came back and was soon at the good, brave work again. She's living in Beaufort now keeping an eating house, but she wants to go north and will probably do so ere long. I'm glad I saw her, very glad. At her house, we met one of the superintendents from Port Royal Island, a Boston man, who was intelligent and very agreeable. He kindly went with us to Miss Hawks, the wife of Surgeon First Regiment South Carolina Volunteers, but she was at the camp with her husband, and she did not go with the expedition up the St. Mary's River was sorry not to see her. So once again, these women left critical documents behind. They left us a trail, a pathway to freedom that they had blazed. Here it is that these women were connecting, finding themselves. No, it, it, like they would say, come hell or high water, it didn't matter. And I mentioned that phrase because here was high water to cross, to go into Buford to spend time, to spend the day, to listen to this woman who had a bounty on her head. $10,000 was a massive sum in 1863. When you heard the $1,500 left as a bounty on a man's head, that was an extreme amount. But $10,000 was what Harriet's bounty was, so way above his. So you know just how much she was wanted dead or alive. But fortunately, God had it. She remained alive throughout the Civil War, and she remained alive many, many years thereafter in Auburn, New York. After she left, she went back up there, and she had the nursing home that she founded due to her parents initially was why she wanted to have a home for the aged is really what it's called in order to take care of the elderly in their final days. And so that home that she founded still remains. Her property still remains, and there is a foundation, and you can always go and you can visit, and they would appreciate your support there. And we we appreciate to this day Harriet Tubman's support that she gave us here. And, in fact, she was appreciated 
and respected even by Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higson. He also wrote of Harriet Tubman in his memoirs and in his journal. He talked about the work that she did as well. And so it is a blessing to have the documentation that points out to people the types of things that did go on here in the Gullah Geechee Nation that are foundational to his story, our story, her story. So I want to read just a piece that is from Army Life in a Black Regiment that I referenced earlier due to him writing the introduction to Susie King Taylor's Reminiscence of My Life, a Black Woman Civil War Memoirs. So Thomas Wentworth Higson writes, Evening, better still was a scene on which I stumbled tonight. Strolling in the cool moonlight, I was attracted by a brilliant light beneath the trees and cautiously approached it. A circle of 30 or 40 soldiers sat around a roaring fire, while one old uncle, Cato by name, was narrating an interminable tale to the insatiable delight of his audience. I came up into the dusky background, perceived only by a few, and he still continued. It was a narrative, dramatized to the last degree of his adventures in escaping from his master to the Union vessel. And even I, who have heard the stories of Harriet Tubman and such wonderful slave comedians, never witnessed such a piece of acting. When I came upon the scene, he had just come unexpectedly upon the plantation house and putting a bold face upon it, had walked up to the floor. And he goes on the way he documented this man telling the story. Well, what was critical was that he, too, had heard Harriet Tubman. He, too, had heard her discuss what had happened as she ran and because of this bounty that had been on her head. But I want to read to you a critical piece of why we named the Cumbie River Bridge for, and you'll hear me also say Cumbie here at times, River Bridge for Harriet Tubman. Because in the scenes in the life of the Harriet Tubman, which was published in 1869, this is a firsthand account of the Cumbie River Expedition told to Sarah Bradford and published to end that book that is on the life of Harriet Tubman. says, quote, When our armies and gunboats first appeared in any part of the South, many of the poor Negroes were as much afraid of the Yankee buckra as of their own masters. It was almost impossible to win their confidences and to get information from them. But to Harriet, they would tell anything. And so it became quite important that she could accompany expeditions going up the rivers or into unexplored parts of the country to control and get information from those who they took with them as guides. General Hunter asked her at one time if she would go with several gunboats up the Cumbie River, the object of the expedition being to take up the torpedoes placed by the rebels on the river to destroy railroads and bridges and to cut off supplies for the rebel troops. She said she would go if Colonel Montgomery was to be appointed commander of the expedition. Colonel Montgomery was one of John Brown's men and was well known to Harriet. According to Colonel Montgomery was appo- accordingly Colonel Montgomery was appointed to the command, and Harriet, with several men under her, the principal of whom was Jay Plowden, whose past I have accompanied the expedition. Harriet describes in the most graphic manner the appearances of the plantations as they passed up the river, the frightened 
Negroes leaving their work and taken to the woods at the sight of the gunboats, then coming to peer out like startled deer and scudding away like the wind at the sound of the steam whistle. Well, said one old Negro, Master said the Yankees are on hold of tails, but never leave until now. But this word was passed along by the mysterious telegraphic communication existing among these simple people that with liquor gunboats come to set them free. And vain then the drivers used their whips in their effort to hurry the poor creatures back to their quarters. They all turned and ran for the gunboats. They came down every road, across every field, just as they left their work and their cabins. Women with children clinging around their necks, hanging to their dresses, running behind, all making at full speed for Lincoln's gunboats. 800 poor wretches at one time crowded the banks with their hands extended toward their deliverers, and they were all taken off upon the gunboats and carried down to Buford. Never see such a sight, Harriet said. We laugh and laugh and laugh. Here you see a woman with a pail on her head, rice and smoking, and it just a ticket to the fire. Young one hanging on behind and hanging around her forehead to hold on, to get a digging in the right spot, eating with all their might, hauling her dress a tube or a shrimo, down her back a bag with a pig in it. One woman brought two pigs, a white woman and a black one, white one and a black one. We took them on long bone, named the white pig Borgard and the black pig Jeff Davis. Sometimes the woman would come with twins hanging around her neck, pairs like I'd never see so many twins in my life, bags on the shoulders, baskets on the head, and young ones tagging behind all loaded, pigs squealing, chickens screaming, young ones squealing. And so they came, pouring down the gunboats. When they stood on the shore, and the small boats put out to take them off. They all wanted to get in at once. After the boats were crowded, they would hold on to them so that they could not leave the shore. The oarsmen would beat them on their hands, but they would not let go. They were afraid the gunboats would go off and leave them and all wanted to make sure of all these arcs of refuge. At length, Colonel Montgomery shouted from the upper deck of the clamor the appealing tones, Moses, you have to Give them a song. Then Harriet lifted up her voice and sang, Of all the whole creation of the east or the west, the glorious Yankee nation is the greatest and the best. Come along, come along, don't be along. Uncle Sam is rich enough to give you all a song. At the end of every verse, the Negroes and their enthusiasm would throw up their hands and shout, Glory! And the rowboats would take that opportunity to push off. And so at last, they were all brought on board. The masses fled. Houses and barns and railroad bridges were burned. Tracks torn up. Torpedoes destroyed. And the object of the exhibition was fully accomplished. End quote. Harriet Tubman leading the Cumbie River Raid caused the tide to change for the entire U.S. Civil War. Turn in the Union favor. Turn in our favor. This is why we honor her legacy. And here we see the linkages between her, Charlotte Fortin, and Susie King Taylor. As they washed out dirt from the clothing, they restored in it a power and an energy for the soldiers to adorn themselves in as they went to fight that bloody war. 
as they say, the war of brother against brother. It wasn't our brother. But thank God for our brothers as African men, as Gullah Geechee men, that stood up and fought, that listened, that were willing to be behind this woman, Moses, to go back and get these things done, to burn these bridges, to get these torpedoes, to go ahead and win this war. We give honor to them, but especially to these women, especially to Harriet Tubman, who herself was a colonel on that day of the company, River Raid. And so whenever I go to that river, whenever I cross it back and forth, coming from Charleston and going to Walterboro, I think of Harriet Tubman, I think of Susie King Taylor, I think of Charlotte Fortin, and I appreciate people believing I embody the spirit of Harriet Tubman. It's been a blessing to walk the roads, the streets, and the shorelines where these women shouted, where Harriet sang. It's a blessing to be able to sing as she does. And it is a blessing to read and to write and to have read of her and to be able to read these journals where her name comes forth again and to honor this legacy of women. I yet work with my hands in the community to yet free my people. I work with my hands and with the strength that is in me due to my mother, her mother, and my great-great-great-great-grandmothers all the way back to the motherland, to Alkimulan, who would have done the same, who would have been there cleaning these buildings as we're doing at Penn Center with these students. And we definitely want to thank Guilford College and Belmont Hill School who are here with me this week. We want to Thank all those hands and those midwives that have been catching the baby and things like that and learn how to catch them there at that school. And we thank those laundresses that we got to get on who scrubbed out so many things and scrubbed in love and then ironed and pressed our clothes, starched them, and had us to put them on. Because when you went out, you didn't go out just representing yourself. You went out representing the whole family. These women represent us. We represent them. And so we honor her story. We honor their journey. And so we will continue the honoring of the journey of our women this month, this coming Saturday at the St. Helena Branch Library, which is on property of Historic Pensetta, part of our National Landmark Historic District here on St. Helena Island this Saturday at noon at the St. Helena Branch Library. I will do the Gullah Geechee Porch Talk there in honor of Women's Her Story Month, but in keeping the legacy of our people alive. And next Wednesday, March 25th, we have the Airs Property and Community Empowerment Workshop going on also at the St. Helena Branch Library beginning at 6 p.m. And I'll be joined by Brothers in Arms for keeping the heirs property, Brother Willie Haywood and also Attorney Clifford Bush III, who is also a native of St. Helena Island. And Willie is from Charleston County, South Carolina. And so we will be standing together to continue to keep our ancestral legacy alive on this land where the blood was spilled, on this land where these women stood, where these songs were sang, where this story was told and where this journey continues. And so I pray that you will be joining me at these places and these spaces. And then almost closing out Women's Her Story Month, I will be going back to the Medical University of South Carolina on Friday, March the 27th at noon 
at 114 Dowdy Street is the Strom Thurman Building, room 125. I'll be presenting on cultural collaboration, Pundit Gullah Geechee Coast, and I can't see any greater cultural collaboration than what went on that was described from these pages from the Gullah Geechee Al-Kambulan archive that I read to you from tonight. And we pray that you'll donate to our work to finish digitizing the Gullah Geechee Al-Kambulan archive. You want to do a fundraiser, you want to support the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy World Tour, please email us to G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com. You can also go to the Gullah Geechee Nation Facebook fan page and also support through the Give button that you see there. And definitely we appreciate all of you that done ye, but we still need Hona for ye more for continue this year, Gullah Geechee land and Gullah Geechee legacy. And we go, I keep on fighting, keep on this movement that these women began because it honors the legacy of our mothers and our journey. This year, the Queen Quet, head funding body of the Gullah Geechee Nation, so glad he hung a tune in one more again to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. Looking forward to seeing Hunter chilling Saturday at the St. Helena Branch Library for the Gullah Geechee Porch Talk. Thank you, thank you, Hunter Chillin. God bless you. Happy Omen Month. <laughs>